Hello friends, welcome to the After Hours Lounge, welcome back if you're a regular listener. My name is Sandy and I am your host and joining me this week is Steve Phillip. Steve is the founder of The Jordan Legacy, um, a suicide prevention charity created in the wake of uh, his son Jordan's suicide um, in December 2019. Um, Prior to that, Steve was already working kind of on social media, especially on LinkedIn, things like that. But uh, when that happened, um, he started to use that platform on LinkedIn um, to to discuss essentially what had happened to Jordan, how it had affected him. um, And he's ended up amassing a a huge following on there and and using that platform. He's gone on to, to, as I said, set up the the Jordan Legacy, a charity, um, and deliver talks to to companies about suicide awareness and prevention. Um, It's still, even in, you know, talking about mental health and things, suicide is still the ultimate stigma in an already stigmatised world that is mental health. Um, so this is an important podcast that I've been waiting to do. You know, it may not be the the most joyous, but I still had a great time chatting to Steve. But I can understand, obviously, the subject matter um, is difficult and maybe triggering to some. But I've always said, you know, people always put trigger warnings and stuff like that. And, and you know, I think it's important to do that. But also the whole idea is that we talk about this stuff more. It is triggering because it's horrible. But we need to talk about it more. The only way that it gets better is if we destigmatize it and, and discuss what's going on in our heads. Um, and that was a lot of what, what me and Steve, you know, discussed. Um, you know, we talked about why it's such an issue for, for men in particular. You know, it's the biggest killer of men under 45. Um, we got into how the Jordan legacy was founded, you know, how he went about dealing with that and essentially using it as a as a purpose you know in in the wake of the the grief he was feeling you know using founding this and 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 actually getting out in the world and and talking about it um the practical actions to to prevent suicide you know suicide as they say on the jordan legacy suicide is a practical act and there needs to be practical solutions to prevent it Uh, so we discussed a lot of that and then most importantly we discussed some early signs uh for you to look out for um if you're worried about a friend, a member of your family, one of your work colleagues, anything, if you're noticing that they're acting strangely, um, you know, some some Steve got into some of the early signs to to check out. And these were some things that I, I didn't even know about. Um, so, you know, it's perhaps not well known, even, you know, I've been in the mental health space now for, for a few years and it was still kind of news to me. So, um, again, it sounds very biased to say Um of course, I'm going to try and get you to listen to this podcast. Um, but this, to me, it really is essential listening. Um, it, it's something we should all, you know, you know, listen to and, and, and be aware of. You know, as Steve said, just like, you know, there's not enough of us that are first aiders and that know how to bandage up a cut. And there's even less of us that know how to deal with uh, a friend who is potentially suicidal or, you know, a friend, member of family, anything, anyone. Um, so, yeah, please do enjoy this episode. Um we get into a lot of stuff around suicide, so if that does trigger you, be careful. But as I said, this needs to be talked about. Um, yeah, let's get into the episode. Do please enjoy. Steve. We were just saying, I've been such a fan of your LinkedIn posts for a uh, for a long time. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Sandy, it's great to uh, to be here. Yeah, LinkedIn very much my platform has been for a good many years actually before I uh, ever kind of stepped into the world that I'm in right now. How 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 has that that transition been? Obviously, it, it was completely born out of tragedy, 
Um, but what's that transition like being, you know, obviously taking a look and you, you work professionally within LinkedIn and, and you know, social media and, and stuff like that. And then to have now gone on to the other side of it and become a spokesperson for such an important issue as, you know, suicide prevention and, and, and things like that. What taught me and, and obviously doing that also whilst you're essentially still sort of grieving and things. What taught me through what that process has been like and, and now having so many eyes on you uh, as you have? Yeah, I think there's a few things to kind of unpackage there, really, in that uh, that question there, Sandy. I think, you know, first of all, as you say, you know, what I do now was born out of, you know, the tragic loss of my son, Jordan, at 34, to, to suicide in December of 2019. Um, up until then, my background was I'd worked in uh, consultancy and leadership and management training for the past 11 and a half years, though. That work had been in my own consultancy practice. Um, coaching LinkedIn and social media to to corporate businesses and and smaller to medium sized businesses, um, having stumbled onto LinkedIn in around about 2008, 2009. And uh, because a lot of my personal coaching was around personal branding, right. it, it just seemed a really good fit. And that's how I stumbled into it. So I'd had a pretty good um, following by most people's standards on LinkedIn up until um 2019 and, and December, nothing on the scale that it's kind of become now. So to answer your question in that transition, um, in some respects, it was relatively easy because I, I knew I had the skills. I knew I had the platform knowledge. Um, uh, I knew how to articulate a message via online channels. Um, so I had a baseline of ability and skills, if you like, and knowledge that allowed me to do that. The biggest hurdle I had to get over was here I am going to be talking about the death of my son by suicide whilst trying to learn all about suicide and mental health and share my story in a way that would hopefully be of benefit, be of comfort, be of help um, uh, and increase awareness to other people that were listening. Yeah, absolutely. And then was was this kind of thing um and i know you know i asked you about it just before we hit record talking about this kind of you know uh, it's obviously a very sensitive subject but were, were you aware of any sort of you know mental health issues you know had, had this kind of thing come into your life at all before jordan took his own life that's no, really interesting i just had a meeting uh this morning with a, with a chap who lost his mother to, to to suicide and you know so many people i speak to said look it was the last thing we we kind of expected uh, to kind of understand the, the, the backstory leading up to Jordan's suicide, um, he was, uh, say, we, we lost him on December the 4th of 2019. Uh, in 2015, in the spring, he'd been diagnosed with um, clinical anxiety and depression. Um, in truth, we, we probably know he was suffering these symptoms for some time before that, but that was the first clinical diagnosis. So, uh, you know, as Jordan's father, I was aware that he had a mental health illness and a diagnosis. Um Jordan was, say, 34 when he took his own life. So we're talking around about the time of his 30th birthday when this diagnosis happened. Already, you know, he was uh, living in his own house. He had his own job, so he wasn't living under my roof. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't see each other every every week. He was an adult, you know, living his his life with all of that, that entails. So um, my kind of knowledge of mental health um was minimal um and you know i look back and i talk about this very openly and this is not a blame thing at all but you know did i really make a significant effort to learn 
about mental health during that diagnosis period for Jordan? The answer is probably no. You know, if I chatted to him and he was on the face of it, seemed to be doing okay, or mm. if he was struggling a bit, you know, we we were there for him. We obviously didn't witness some of his deeper struggles. So yeah, my my knowledge of mental health was was pretty poor. You know, I'd say it was a good solid two out of ten, and I'm probably being generous there. Um, so in in that respect, when this all happened, yeah, I, I was totally um, unprepared, really. And just just to add to that, his mother and I, you know, we separated in 2005. We maintained a really good relationship since. And uh, um, but Jordan's mother was a senior mental health nurse, uh, still is. Um, um, and she would have occasions where she would be concerned and, and would call me and say, could you have a chat with Jordan? Yeah, I am concerned. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I'm kind of proud to admit this. There were probably times where I thought, oh, she's kind of over-worrying here. Mm. You know, I've only spoken to him the day before. So I'd pick up the phone and call Jordan and he'd chat about his day and what was going on. We'd talk about the football. Um, and, yeah, he said, yeah, I've had a bit of a tough week, not been sleeping great. But, you know, I came away from those calls not knowing how to spot any signs, didn't even know I was meant to be looking for anything. I would report back and say, look, I've spoken to Jordan. He, he kind of seems fine, you know. So job done, you know, in, in my respect. So that's kind of where I was, you know, as many people are that I've spoken to really sadly in terms of their knowledge of mental health. Yeah. And it's so it. it... It's so interesting. Again, just before we hit record, you know, you said you'd taken a look at my story and, and my own struggles. And it's it, a lot of the, my other sort of friends and, and peers and people that I've spoken to, for men especially, it does seem to be around that sort of age where people kind of start to struggle that sort of late 20s, early 30s. And you're kind of, I think, I don't know whether it's because you realize that your kind of power potentially is diminishing a bit, whether it's, you know, for me, it was like it was silly things like starting to notice suddenly you got less hair on your head and you, you feel less powerful and or you're perhaps not as physically imposing as you once were or you're you're not you haven't made the millions you thought you were going to make it by 30. You know, oh, I'm going to have a Porsche and a, you know, a mansion by the time I'm 30. And I, I, I do wonder whether those feelings start just something starts to happen to to men, especially when they get to that age. And, it, you know, that that anxiety and that depression, as you said, Jordan was probably struggling a bit before then. But for me, it manifested at 28, 29 years old. And that was when it reached its peak. Um, so it's 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 interesting that that was the, the same with with Jordan as well. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm always really clear about that. I have a vast uh, degree of knowledge compared with um you know what I had uh, three years ago, but but I'm, I'm never going to become a psychologist and uh, um, you know mental health professional in that respect. But yeah, I think a lot of the conversations, a lot of the research, a lot of the studies would suggest that you know young men do reach that point, um, you know, of late twenties or early thirties, where they start to reflect and say, "Kind of had these ambitions when I left university. You know, this is what I was going to achieve." Am, am I there? You know, mm. I don't, I'm not sure I am. And, you know, as you say, it could be a, oh, starting to lose a bit of hair here. And so there's, you know, one or two signs that life is kind of moving on and, mm. and a kind of reflection on am I where I hoped I would be? Now, you know, we 
got to see Jordan's journals. Jordan left a number of journals behind. They're all partially completed over the last four or five years of his life. So there were maybe a month or two at a time. They're just in notebooks, really. But there was a lot of that reflection, a lot of talk, uh, a lot of self-criticism uh, there about what he hadn't achieved, had he made the wrong move buying this house, why I've not achieved this in my career yet. You know, it, it was there. It was all very very much kind of written down in in black and white there so i think there is a lot lot of that just reaching that point um i have to say look you know going back you know my time of life going back to my youth did we have the same Mm. and i think yeah you probably grow up thinking i've not achieved it but i think we're in a different world now sandy we're in a world where um i didn't really know how my friends were I didn't even know what they were achieving, my school friends, a lot of them. You know, I'd have a few friends I keep in touch with, but I kind of got married with kids in my early 20s. And um, so I didn't see a lot of that. There was nothing for me to make a comparison with. Mm. You know, did I feel myself I was doing okay? Well, no, I could be doing better. But I didn't have a Facebook or an Instagram yeah. or a TikTok or a Twitter to go, yeah, look what, you know, excuse me, you know, <laughs> what he's achieving. Mm. And we are in a world now where it's very easy to make comparisons in terms of where we are or mm. where we think we should be. Um, and I do think that plays a lot into you know what's been happening in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to say it before you said it. I think, you know, I, I say it all the time, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think especially we we do kind of hold ourselves to the hierarchy of this day and age. And, you know, how oh, well, I don't, you know, and, 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 it, and especially with, you know, this sort of hustle culture and you should, you know, people, people, you know, my age and, and, you know, it should be, you should be maximizing every opportunity and everything that you seem to enjoy, you should find a way to monetize and things like that. And it starts to get to the point where I hold on, actually, where has it gone? You know, what if I want to just do something because I love it, you know? Mm. And, and I think that's something that people hugely miss out on um, that does inform their, their, their kind of mental well being. you know, is having this, thing that they love doing that they f- don't feel any pressure to do because then that allays any stresses of should I have bought this house why have I not been promoted because then you can go well at least I've got this thing that I love doing you know I, you you briefly mentioned there you know chat to chat to Jordan about the football or, or whatever and things you know it's it, having having these interests I think especially for men um I don't think they talk about it. there's a a famous actor called Jonah Hill. I'm not sure if you've, he's done a brilliant documentary on Netflix about um, him. Him, It's basically, they've recorded a session with his therapist and it's amazing. It's called Stutz. Um, he does an awful lot of stuff about mental health. Um, but he, he said this quote, he was making a film about skateboarding a few years ago. And um, he was saying, look, I'm rubbish at skateboarding. I can't do it or anything like this. And he kind of got this thing of who, who am I to be doing this? And then actually he kind of reached this point and I'm I'm still trying to reach it. I think a lot of people are is realizing that actually I deserve a seat at the table just because I'm a nice guy, not because I'm, I've got the, I'm bringing these accolades with me. Actually, I'm just allowed, I'm allowed to have a seat at the table just because I'm a good dude and people like me for me. And, and I think for me, that is, that's Nirvana. That's, I think once you've, once you've reached that, especially for men, once you've reached that, that you don't need to bring, financial success or awards or a, a, a high level skill in something. Once you bring that, once you realize you don't need to bring that, I, I think um, that's when you can start really stopping that sort of anxiety. And, you know, once again, as I said, you said as well, I ain't a professional, but for me, I think that's, that was very valuable when I read that. I remember. 
Yeah, it's really tough though, isn't it? Because because everywhere you look, society is is putting these pressures on us yeah. to say actually you do need these things. Yeah. You do need to look a certain way. You do need to behave. You do need to have this this level of income or this kind of house or this kind of car. And yeah. so no, you know, you can you know be the best self talker in, in the in the world, but then if you switch your TV on or switch your phone on or you know everything around you is suggesting actually this is kind of where you should be going and. Uh, it's tough, you know. It, it is is a very different world to to the one that I grew up with. And you know, if you look at, at Jordan and and you look at you know his, his many friends I've spoken to over the years since, who you know would say Jordan was a guy. You know, he was the guy when he walked into that room that everyone looked at and went, you know, he's a good looking guy. You know, six yeah. foot tall. He you then he get on a dance floor at a wedding and we'll go, yeah, no one should have those kind of dance moves. You know, that's not fair. Um, you know, he you know, I didn't know this, I didn't know any of this. This has all mm. come from his friends. And 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 um in so many respects, he was the guy that others aspired to be, but inside he wasn't anywhere near where he felt um he should be. So that in itself is is quite telling, I think. Yeah, and and it's an all too common story, isn't it? With whether it's, you know, Robin Williams or all these other famous people that, you know, or, or even just other people I've I've heard of being within this mental health space, every single person, or, you know, so many of them were the, the light in the room, weren't they? You know, it's often seems to be the people that were struggling most. It's almost like all the happiness within them was just projected out rather than leaving a little bit inside for themselves, you know? Yeah. And that's a good point, isn't it? You know, sometimes, and, and, um, you know, I've met with many people who've lost loved ones, particularly young young people and young guys in particular, who will always describe them as the most giving of, of people and the most generous of people. And 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 you can almost see a trend and a pattern quite often there that says, you know, kind of the very best of us in some ways are the ones that don't see the best in themselves. Yes. And, uh, you know, if we can start to, to deal with that, I think a little bit better and, you know, that's a long journey going backwards to when we bring youngsters up through through school. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's where we, we, we need to be instilling this kind of self-belief um, in, in people. And and I think you described it perfectly, Sammy, to say, you know, I, I deserve a place at this table for mm. who I am, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, through, you know, what happened to Jordan and, and things like that, you, you've obviously set up this... Um, the suicide prevention charity, the Jordan Legacy. Um, when, when it, you know, afterwards, can you can you talk me through the, the timeline a little bit? And and where did you initially, you know, were you kind of thinking I, I need to just put this to bed and and try and move on? And and you know, because I guess you did you come to a bit of a fork in the road where you went, I just can't have anything to do with this. And then actually, you went, you know what? I'm going to do the opposite of that and honor his memory and and try and you know stop this happening and do everything that you've achieved now. Can you, can you talk me through that, that sort of process and time a bit? Yeah. I would love to say there was some kind of master plan here, Sandy. Um, but, um, you, you know, again, I was having this conversation, sharing my story this, this morning and uh, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the timelines, you know, of, of events uh, for me were that, you know, I, I immediately stepped back from my consultancy practice we were in december leading up to, to christmas time none of us knew that covid was around the corner of course in a few weeks time but um um so uh, you know my immediate job was to be the person who had to deal or manage uh, the aftermath if you like so 
I assumed that role, I think, within the family. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that it was expected, but I assumed the role of needing to sort out all that needed to be sorted out. And, mm. you know, some of that was in the first few days where we didn't even know where Jordan was, where he'd been taken by the police. He, he died at home. Um, and, um, you know, I spent time driving around a number of police stations in, in Leeds trying to find out where they'd taken him and, and who was in charge of the case. So so immediately I was trying to deal with some of that. As time went on, of course, it was um, really all about what comes with that, the funerals and inquests and police and all these kind of things. But uh, also then starting to deal with Jordan's affairs. Um, you know, he had his own house, um, you know, and with that came everything that uh, comes with that from, you know, TV and utility bills to council tax to, you know, banks and investments that he had, all of which uh, he obviously kept on his mobile phone somewhere or digitally. Uh, and still to this day, we don't have access to his mobile oh. phone. No one knew his PIN number. So, we, so you know, I was able to find um, through uh, a family member, someone she knew that uh, had pretty high level clearance in terms of uh, uh, cyber security. It got me into Jordan's laptop, got me into his Google account. And through a process, managed to find all the pieces of the jigsaw. Um, so really cutting that story Sure, you know, I had that to deal with all the time mm. in my head. I'm suddenly asking the questions that everybody who's ever lost someone to suicide asks is why? What why didn't I see this? What what do I understand about all this? Mm. So I started consuming books, um, from Matt Haig books to you know, to to others that are out there and um just to try and understand mental health and suicide and you know, someone argue a little bit late in the day but um i, I just i just needed answers as, as i think we we all all did um and all do so i started to consume this and then literally it was three weeks uh, i know the exact date it was december the 16th jordan um, died on december the 4th um with all the frustration with the anger with the mess that was going on with the police and the chaos and kind of sat there i thought am i the only person going through this and and you know what if i shared my story what if i shared something on linkedin and and mm. someone else could read just the devastation that jordan's left behind here and it wasn't about blaming him or anything but the devastation you know maybe that'll stop someone else doing the same and i was having all those kind of thoughts um i didn't know anyone else that had lost someone to suicide you know that was mm. not a conversation i'd had so I wrote this article, published it on LinkedIn on December the 16th. Uh, I knew LinkedIn articles rather than posts never performed particularly well, but, hey, it was too long to go on a post. Um, and I titled it the day my son took his own life and um, put the photographs of Jordan on there. And it just took off. And it just, from a LinkedIn article perspective, went viral. I had people from psychologists uh, contacting me, um, thanking me for explaining it in such a kind of raw and open way that they might have struggled to, to get across just what it's like mm. to have lost someone to suicide. I had mothers, fathers, um, relatives of people lost, you know, to suicide contacting me. I had people who were struggling themselves, which was really interesting, mm. saying, look, I, I, I've read your article and I, I, this is what I was intending to do today and I've decided 
not to the people like Ariana Huffington from the Huff Post emailing me one morning and just saying, look, I've just read your article. And it, it kind of, it just spiraled. Mm. It was just huge. And I think for me, Sandy, that was probably the pivotal moment very early on where I thought, okay, I kind of, I've got a voice. I knew that on LinkedIn. Have I got this other voice that I can use in a different way? And I just gradually over the coming weeks would would kind of drip feed and share a little bit more mm -hmm. um, using my style, using my my voice of being very open and, and, and honest, but but also hopefully adding a little bit of a learning experience in there mm. for people. Um, and the post just kept getting huge swathes of, of, of responses and um and that allowed me to be introduced to other people working in suicide prevention and mental health um and start to understand this world a little bit and one of those individuals was a chap called Paul Paul Vettles who works with me still today at the Jordan Legacy who just mm. returned to his native York from spending 15 years with his wife in Australia where he worked extensively in suicide prevention helping write government strategy and mm. Uh, other things over there and, and we just met up and we we talked and I said look I'm thinking about doing something I don't know what that looks like um, and that was kind of my hazy memory of those early days you know two and a half years ago where mm. the Jordan legacy was was kind of founded um, I think I was pretty clear I didn't want to be a crisis helpline i thought yeah. they're out there already um you know i wasn't quite sure what we were going to be but but as time developed i was became clearer through my my conversations with paul and others that coming from a business background and quite a practical kind of person in that respect could we apply a kind of business sense to suicide prevention and look at the practical act of suicide and how we can prevent it. And in mm. essence, that's kind of the premise of the Jordan legacy and, mm. and what we focus on. Yeah, that's uh, you say on the website, um, the act of suicide is a practical act. It needs practical actions to prevent it. Um, can you can you go into that a little bit more for me? Yeah, we, we know that, um, and it's been quoted extensively, that most suicides are preventable. So we, we have to you know, just highlight the word most there. We yeah. cannot prevent every suicide, yeah. even with the best interventions in, in the world. Um, but we know most are. Uh, the evidence of that has been proven many times through case studies and research globally. Mm. Um, and we know that most suicides can be prevented if the right interventions are brought in at the right time and people are supported with their mental health struggles. We know that 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental health illness. Mm. Um, unfortunately, 64% or thereabouts of those have not presented to mental health services in mm. the 12 months prior to their death. But, but if we can get the right interventions in place in a timely way and provide the right support, uh, including support for those bereaved by suicide who are at a 60% greater risk of suicide yeah. following a loss, then we know we can prevent suicide. So it's a very practical act. And that practical act actually expands out. Some of the work we do is to look at workplaces, for example, and hmm. talk to them about their policies and procedures. Um, and you know, as an example, I know people that have died by suicide following 
you know, a really difficult meeting with the, the manager where they've maybe been suspended from work, for example, mm. and there are no safeguarding policies or procedures in place or there weren't at the time in those companies. We know that people choose outdoor spaces to end their own lives. So we've run sessions and online events around the design of bridges and high-rise buildings and and how can we make those safer and reduce the, the risk or the attraction even mm. for someone to choose those to take their own life. So when you start to look at those areas, what can we do in communities in a real practical sense yeah. um, to prevent suicides, then there are lots of very practical things that you and I can do, the ordinary mm. person, in the street can do um not just companies and organizations and construction firms but um there's a lot we can all do to really reduce the numbers absolutely i think it's such a difficult one because the work the work kind of needs to come from multiple places doesn't it you know the 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 work needs to come essentially it has to kind of come from the individual as well. And I know perhaps that's difficult to say because essentially in this they're the victim but there's still a certain amount of sovereignty that they need to take over it you know but given the scale of the problem it it can be kind of easy to feel hopeless when it comes to you know organizations and 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 things like that i mean full full disclosure for for me i i kind of sought professional help and was essentially turned away um because they just didn't have the facilities or they wanted to put me on medication and stuff and i i i you know a family member had been on medication before and it it just made it worse so i was like no i i a, a little pill every morning is not going to sort this for me. Um, and I, I, you know, I still remember exactly where I was, but I, I actually ended up just making the decision to call my mum, And that's what I did. And then two days later, I was on a, on a, on a plane home to, to Scotland. And then I sort of went up and talked it all out and, you know, everything like that. And then kind of hit, hit a bit of a refresh button, I suppose. Um, and yeah, know, I, I, th- Look, I, sorry, sorry, kind of across, but no, no, no. Uh, I think you're right. I, I think it works both ways. So, so first of all, you you imagine for, for you and I, we get a physical illness of any kind. You know, whether, whether it's a, you know we've broken you know uh, an arm or something, or yeah. we, our leg playing football or whatever it might be, or it's something worse than that. It, it's it's you know we think we might might have you know a cancer or a, or a heart problem, something like that. Most of us, even though blokes can be a bit slow off the mark with this. Um, most of them would go, right, I'll go and see a GP, I'll go and tell somebody. Mm. Or I'd even say to a family member, you know what, I've got this, I'm not feeling too good. When it comes to mental health, and I better not tell anyone. Mm. Uh, you know, I'll just keep it to us. It's not the kind of thing, particularly if I'm a man, that, you know, I, I, I really feel comfortable talking about. So first thing we've got to do as a society is create spaces and an environment where guys feel they can talk. And I think we're making we're making big progress uh, in this with the likes of Andy's Man Club, uh, Man's Club, and all these other places. We're, we're, we're making some big, big strides. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, we've got to, I think you're absolutely right, encourage and equip individuals to feel mm. comfortable enough to open up and reach out for help. Mm. Yeah, all the training at the moment is for us to reach in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and spot the signs and and all that. But if the person is masking the signs and the person's hiding them really well, which some people w- would would do, you know, I was with a mother this weekend on a on a walk in memorial of her seventeen year old son who died in twenty seventeen. She said we had you know he yeah he went through a spell when he was fourteen fifteen, 
but then the last few years he looked, he was absolutely fine. We thought he was fine. So if you you know people can mask this really well. Mm. So there has to be a way of allowing people who are struggling to to feel comfortable and feel able to open open up. And that's about reducing the stigma, breaking that down, and creating the the right environment um, there for for that to happen. So yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. That you know mm. that's a really important part of the process, really. Yeah, and it was something something really interesting I saw as well recently. You know, it was um, it was talking about the way that men talk to each other and things, and we we do communicate a bit differently. You know, there is a lot of banter, and there is a lot of I, I suppose rugged is a good word to use it. You know, the way we speak to each other, and actually, I think sometimes when engaging in sort of chat about mental health, that kind of gets completely switched, and it almost turns into a completely different cadence, and one that suddenly, if someone's struggling, they're like it's a bit disarming and you're like, I'm not sure about this. So I mean, for me, I think it, it's like you, you need to find a way to, you know, open the conversation up, but without entirely changing the way you speak to each other, and, you know, and that can be, you know, I, I don't know. I can't, can't think necessarily of an example, but you know, it, it doesn't need to suddenly go into therapist mode, I suppose, you know, that it, it can be done with kind of, a bit of lightheartedness almost to get started, you know, come on, let's, you know, I had a shit day as well. You had a, you know, and, and just get, get that conversation rolling. And then slowly you can start getting into it more and more because if someone is struggling and I can say this, you know, as someone who has and and does, I ain't going to just come out with it after two minutes of, you know, Oh, ask them how they are. And then ask them how they are again. Second time, I'm still not going to tell you. You know that that yeah. needs. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah, no, I, I I imagine in a scenario, you know, a bunch of lads sitting around the, in the pub about to watch the football and uh, just say, right, everybody, just stop the banter for a minute, and um, I just want to go around the table and ask on a scale of one to ten, how's your mental health, right? Wait, we've done that, right? Yeah. Come on, yeah, yeah. That's you know, that's just bizarre, isn't it? So yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think we've got to use our natural behaviours and tendencies as guys. To, to get the conversation happening. But women and, and their networks are very, very different. And and um, I hope this is appropriate language. I hope it's, not, you know, it's just an anatomical language I'm going to use. But, you know, I heard a lady say, you know, the other day that, you know, you can get a group of women together who've never known each other before. Uh, and in a space of five minutes, they're talking about their vaginas. You know, it's just, you kind of just you know, whoa. When I heard that, I went, okay. But that's kind of the truth really yeah. um where guys it's very different so i think we 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 have to kind of keep who we are mm. um but we have to have the conversation and just say look guys just want to let you know I, yeah i someone needs to take the lead almost at times and say mm. in a group look, i just need to let you know i've had a bit of a shit week and uh you know, I've, I've been struggling a bit and i know you're probably going to take the mick out of me or, or whatever but um and and just that someone else is going to say well you know what I've not had a good one yeah. either. And and before you know it, so I think it has to be, I think you're absolutely right. We we still have to be blokes, mm. um, you know, and, 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 but someone has to kick the yeah. kind of conversation off, I think really. And, and I think we need to be aware that, you know, if you're out with a bunch of lads watching the football in the pub or whatever it is, there's going to be one of you at least who, who who's kind of struggling and I, and I, and I think we we kind of just need to be conscious of that and not just let it ride and think everyone's having a a good Love time. It. But equally, we don't have to make it so formal that we bring the whole the whole mood down. It's yeah. it's, it's about getting the balance right. Clearly, look if a discussion opens up, 
and you're really concerned about a mate, you're going to say, look, mate, now the football's over. Let's you and me go and have a, you know, yeah. a, a chat before the night's out. I'm just a little concerned with what you said earlier. And, and, and that's the point. We need to have the skills. You know, they're easy to learn um, because they're all, they're, they're out there, you know, I need to know the questions I've got to ask that mate of mine. Uh, I need to know what it is I'm listening for, and I need to know what to do, how to signpost that person afterwards. So I think we all need those mm. skills just in case. Um, look, we're, we're all taught we should take first aid training. Most of us don't. Um, you know, someone fell over and, and cut their arm open in front of me right now. I wouldn't really have a clue what to do. And, yeah, I've been around long enough to know I should probably do a first aid course just, just in case. Mm. You know, I, I haven't bothered. I think it's it's the same with mental health because the statistics will tell us you're more likely to come across someone with a mental health illness and problem than you are falling over in the street in front of you with a with a medical physical problem. So yeah. I think it's, it's really important. So let's let's get into that a little bit more. Then what, what you were just saying. You know, what are it? You know, in in all the the work you've done over the last few years and things, what are some of the the signs to to kind of look out for you know what are those sort of early identifiers to be like there's something not right with whether it's you know your your friend a member of your family your partner anything you know um what what are what are some i'm not saying you know go through the whole list with us but you know what what um yeah what are some of the main ones that you've you've kind of come to come to notice over the last few years yeah i think i, I think you just mentioned the first main one just a, a moment ago and that is something's just not right mm. I, I, you know, sometimes you just don't need a list. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I can go through a list of, of certain things now, and I mentioned some of them. But sometimes it's just looking at, at, at the, you know, that person in your family or a friend or whatever going, they're not, that's not the same person mm. that I saw, you know, a few weeks ago. And this is not the first time I've seen them like this. Look, everyone can have a bad day. So I think we've got to be really careful of going, whoop, they're not looking too good. Let me go in and have the suicide prevention talk with them. You know, um, we've got to be a little careful of, of, of yeah. that. But I think if you noticed over, over a pattern, and, and typically we would say, and, and the medical profession would say, if it's over a two-week period, you've mm. seen a, a change in behaviours that you are concerned about, that is definitely a time to consider if it's happening to yourself, getting talking to somebody um or if you're seeing it someone else going to have that conversation if we drill down and get more specific it could be a range of things we could see you know that person is is drinking more heavily uh, mm. we don't have to necessarily see them drinking we go around the house and see there's a load of empty bottles by the recycling bin for example you know we could um see that they are just engaging in what we call maybe risky behaviors you know maybe they've always ridden a motorbike mm. and but actually just lately they're not as safe as they were. They're kind of going for it in a way I've not seen them do in the past and, you know, or riding a bike, you know, road bike, whatever it might be. Um, you know, it could be that sleep is a big one. I think sleep is one of the biggest ones to look out for that, you know, this mate's old friend has been saying, I've just been struggling to sleep. And it's not the first time. This is kind of two or three times. You know, Jordan, you, I would have conversations with Jordan and they just say, you know, you know, even a few weeks leading up to his death, we'd say, oh, I've been struggling to sleep, dad, again, not, not had a good night. That, that meant nothing. It just meant my son was struggling to sleep. Mm. It, it really meant nothing to I know right now, I tell you what, if right now, if I was having a WhatsApp message with Jordan and he was just saying, oh, I've been struggling to sleep again, dad, I'd be saying, Jordan, it's the third or fourth night now. Mm. Tell you what, you're 20 minutes away. I'm going to hop in the car. 
have a, let's have a coffee and a catch up. It's been a while, but mm. let's have a chat. You know, without a doubt, and that's not just hindsight. Kind of talking, yeah. about, you know, that without a doubt, knowing what I know now. So you know, there's those kind of signs. It could be just mood mood levels. They've become mm. more withdrawn. They're not you know, they're not coming out anymore to the bar or or you know the football game or whatever it might be. They suddenly say, "No, it's all right. I'm, I'm kind of busy tonight." You know, there's excuses. There'll be excuses mm. made, but they were always the person that came. They were the first one to. In fact, they'd organised the trip. Mm. You know, um, so you know we could go on and and on and on. Um, you know, from obvious signs of anxiety or, or or whatever. But, you know, I think if you were to put it into a catch-all there, Sandy, you'd say, is there a change in this person's behaviour mm. that's been going on for a period of a week or two that's just concerning me? And I think that's enough for you to want to go and say, look, Sandy, I wanted to, just wanted to have a chat with you. Over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed mm. this. And, look, I'm little concerned and I wanted to check in with you and see if everything's okay of course the answer is going to be to that question I'm fine yeah, everything's okay yeah, yeah I'm fine okay um okay well look this is what I've observed and I think you've got to be really specific to mm. say you know this is what I've seen and you know this is last Thursday and Wednesday and you know I might be totally wrong. You can tell me to get lost or whatever you want to do, but I'm your mate, I'm your friend, I'm your brother, sister, whatever. Um, but look, just tell me what's going on for you at the moment. Mm. Just explain to me, you know, what's 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 happening. And and just there's a great framework that I use quite a lot in the in, in my talks that I picked up and learned from elsewhere. And there are many acronyms out there. I did a post about acronyms the other day on LinkedIn because there are so many. You mm. meet yourself coming backwards trying to remember them, I think. But TED, T-E-D, is a great yeah. one. And that is tell, explain, describe. Right. I can remember three things, you know, even in my time of life, Sandy. Uh, it's a really easy one to remember. So if you're in a conversation, okay, tell me, Sandy, but just tell me what's going on mm. for you at the moment. Sandy tells me, okay, explain to me, you know, just, you know, what kind of effect, how's that impacting on you? But, you know, just tell me a little bit more so I can understand. Mm. And then just describe to me, yeah, just describe to me how this is making you feel. And mm. those open questions um, just are designed to get you into that conversation. There are no yes or no answers. Um, there's no, oh, do you have a mental health problem? You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's none of that. It's, it's just a conversation using a really simple framework that allows that person, A, to know you really care. And and the important part of that is not just asking the questions, it's the listening mm. uh, really attentively. And, and, um, and then, you know, at the end of that conversation, just saying, okay, well, look, thank them, always thank them, because that was pretty tough. Mm. But then probably to open up and just say, look, I really appreciate you telling me. I know, you know I'm a mate and it's maybe not that easy to share this kind of stuff. But um, look, you know, how can I help you? What can we, you know, what can we do? Um, mm. Because clearly this this isn't you. Um, what can we do? Um, and if you are equipped as that person with, with some knowledge of mental health helplines, support groups like Andy's Man's Club, if, if you've got, you know, in your phone somewhere, Mm. You know, you know, just a list of places that if you had a mate in trouble, you could just go, well, look, I'm just aware of this this group or we don't necessarily need to whip you off to the doctors to, today. Mm. 
but is that an option? You know, have you talked to anyone else about this? Um, so I just think those kind of questions can, but but knowing what to do next mm. is important as well. Yeah. And there's just tons of training out there. There's tons of free training. Mm. Um, you can go on the Zero Suicide Alliance website today and get free 20 minute video on how to have that suicide conversation. Mm. Um, and I think that is the other important thing that if that conversation leads to a point where you get really concerned, one of the biggest myths out there is if you if you ask the suicide question, you're going to plant that seed in that person's mind. Mm. And that's a myth that has been debunked a million mm. times right now. You're more likely to save someone. Yeah. But how you ask it is really important. And part of the assist training that, that that's out there at the moment is 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 to use something like, you know, um, Sandy, when sometimes when people are feeling like you've just described to me, they are sometimes they kind of feel like they don't want to be around anymore mm. and they even start considering thoughts of suicide. I just need to ask you as a mate, are you having these thoughts? Mm. And the relief sometimes from people when you ask that question is, 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 is huge. Mm. So, you know, these are the kind of things that, you know, when I deliver talks to companies and go out and, and I learn from other people all the time. Uh, these are the sort of conversations we need to be prepared to have Mm -hmm. um you know um just to keep each other safe really yeah i think relief is such a key word there um you know i think for men especially such a worry about talking about it is that the the worry that they're going to be a burden and that they're a killjoy and our oh, people don't want to hear this and actually once it there's a real thing you know and it's one of the biggest things i say is, is talk, you know talk to your mates and talk about this stuff and you know the tagline of the podcast is the more we all talk the easier it becomes and and I think it is it often sounds so simple, but actually, you know, it, when it when it's structured the way that you've just described there, it it's not about providing the answers. It's about giving the person a space to just get it out um, for, for context. Uh, I had my first therapy session last Thursday and, and it was an hour long and I got the first sort of 15, 20 minutes in. I'm not going to lie. I was like, this is shit. I'm getting nothing out of this. She's just, she's, she's not really answering me. She's not uh, giving me the answers I need and stuff. And then I got to about the kind of 35, 40 minute mark. And I went, I don't need the answers. I was like, I am, it was, it felt literally like a weight being pulled off me. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I feel I'm not going to sit there and pretend I'm healed after one session, but in the three or four days that have followed since that, I feel lighter. I do. I genuinely do. And and what I think I've I've learned from it. And I'm your episode 109 of this podcast. I've had so many conversations about it. I've been, you know, talking about this for years and it's taken me this long to get to the point where I'm like actually maybe I don't need answers and a plan. I just need to get it off my chest sometimes. And and it was yeah, uh, it was yeah. Oh, I think, well, firstly, you know, well, well done because, you know, so you could have easily just carry on with the podcast, talking to people and thought, you know, well, you know, this is doing the job for me and it's, it's a big, a big step. But I, you know, I think we've got to recognize particularly men, we're, we're fixers. We like to fix yeah. things. It's in our genes, really. And um, you, you're so right. This is not about fixing. And I think the moment you realize that it's not trying to fix someone, that takes a huge weight off. Mm being able to have the conversation because I think the big fear for a lot of people is I won't even ask the question because I don't know how to fix this. Mm. Well, you don't need to fix it. 
you just need to be able to allow that person the space as you brilliantly described to open up and get it off their chest and that alone could be all it'll take mm. to get that person moving from a one out of ten on the scale to a four or five where they are now mm. equipped to be able to go and get some help themselves yeah. so i think that's really important what you said absolutely um and then j- just before we finish up this is something that i i get very interested in because it's it's sometimes something that I I struggle with a little bit when you are so surrounded uh, by these kind of conversations and and this kind of thing. How I mean, you're nodding, you know. I'm going to say, <laughs> how, how do you how how do you go about looking after your your own uh, you know mental well being and and making sure that you're kind of checking in on yourself and and essentially practicing what you preach. It's my wife listening. Uh, so I think she's in the other room right now. She'd be going, you don't. Uh, so, yeah, it's difficult. Um, I, I think I've managed to set much better boundaries. I think in the first year of doing this work, I would pick up every phone call. I'd be right. talking people down from suicide that were in the States or wherever. Um, you know, that was my life. And, oh, gosh, someone else is struggling. I must be there and message them four, five, six times on LinkedIn, check they're okay. That, that just became unsustainable as as, as it grew. Um, so I think I've managed to put better boundaries in place. Uh, yeah, I won't lie. This is a tough gig. It, mm. it, it's, it's, it, it's hard work every day because I'm I'm faced with the conversation around suicide and seeing Jordan's name, you mm. know, every minute. You know, we had the uh, debate in the Houses of Parliament that was being live streamed yesterday to discuss the mandatory introduction of suicide in the school's curriculum. And um, I've not expected this at all, but suddenly my name and Jordan's name is mentioned by one of the MPs mm. um, in the debate. And you go, whoa. Um, um, but um, so the boundaries are that that I, I've kind of stopped responding immediately to every single cry for help that comes in, which is, you know, a genuine bit of help and recognise that we've got some great resources on the website uh, I've been really open and honest with them about what I'm capable of doing, that we're not a crisis helpline. Uh, this is how we were. But look, we've got some great resources on the website. Um, and please, um, you know, have a look. And hopefully there's something there that, that will be helpful um, for you. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of guilt when I do that because I think, God, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm part of them, but I'm not. I'm signposting them to the right place. I cannot fix everyone's problems. I had to recognise that. The other things is 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 just trying to keep keep the evenings as free as possible. Um, although the phones out occasionally on LinkedIn, keep the weekends really pretty clear. Um, there's you know a lot of work to do edit, editing our radio shows sometimes and things like that that I might need to spend an hour or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and just doing things like I enjoy my cycling. Um, I'm a keen road cyclist. Get out of the bike. I'm a, a, a novice drummer who thinks he's Phil Collins. So I go and annoy the neighbours in the garage, um, playing along to Phil Collins, uh, or trying my best to uh, at times. So again, it's going back to something you said earlier on about having some things you really enjoy mm. uh, doing. Um, and so you know, so I've got things like like that, and I've got great support here with my my wife and um, kind of rest of the family and friends as well, which I think is is really important. Mm. Um, but kind of just one final point on, on that, and kind of back to a question, I think you kind of framed this question really early on, and, and that was, there's no question in my mind that the work that I do here was an immediate distraction from my own trauma and grief. I had a lot of physical trauma in the first few 
few months and uh, um, as a result of this as uh, combined with the emotional trauma of course um, and I'm not kidding myself uh, you know I throw myself into this as a way of, of not having to sit and dwell um, and look that's not a bad thing I've been told by by someone in the clinical sense that's not a bad thing that that you know if that works for you mm-hmm. and I think it does you know because most of the time I can be you know, as I am today, having these conversations, there will be moments in any talk or an interview sometimes where, you know, you reflect on something and the what comes in. It's in those quieter moments uh, alone, you know, where the full enormity of what's happened sort of, you know, I can even feel it now, you know, just talking about it, you know, the full enormity hits you. Um, and, and they're the difficult times. Um, but, um, yeah, th- this has helped me enormously and I think for anyone listening who's been through anything like this uh, at all that could be your friend you know you've lost your best mate or whatever and I still speak to a lot of Jordan's friends and you know some of them are still struggling three years on mm-hmm. um, you don't have to go out and and start a charity or, or yeah. go and talk about your story or do or do that I think what you do have to do from my experience and it's just from my experience is you have to find some sense of purpose as soon as you can do whatever that is. Whether you become an artist, whether you become a drummer, whether you mm. decide to to walk the length of the country just by yourself, um, not you know, not like the three dads or anything. Um, find some sense of purpose because mm. if you sit and dwell, as you know, people I know have done, that will destroy you. Mm-hmm. And I think the important message of hope is if you can find that sense of purpose as soon as possible, you can rebuild yeah. your life. You can have a life. You can laugh at things again and find joy in things. That grief stays exactly the same size. Nothing mm-hmm. changes, but you will grow around it in mm-hmm. time. And I think you know that's a really important message, particularly for anyone who's who's, who's lost someone. And I think... You know, the final message for anyone who's struggling is there are so many people out there that want to help and can help. I know it's a bit of a minefield to find them, mm. but I couldn't believe when I looked to do a bit of research recently for a talk and looked on Companies House to see how many mental health charities there are in the UK. Mm. There are 440,000. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I don't know who they all are. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, just these are registered charities, you know, right. companies' houses. It's just, um, um, yeah, 400,000, 440,000, something like that. It's just mind, mind-blowing. Mm. So the help help is there. Um, mm. Google can be your friend in, in, in that respect. And um, But uh, there's always somebody out there who can, who, who can help, and, and there's always hope at the end of the day. Can't really think of any better way to finish a podcast than that, Steve. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, if people want to find out more about what you get up to, where can they find you? Yeah, best place is uh, thejordanlegacy.com. So our website, our mission, our strategy, our radio show, kind of everything, our events are, are all uh, on there. And um, for those people who want to find me on LinkedIn, kind of my main platform there, uh, Steve and then Philip with two L's and no S at the end, they'll find me pretty easily um, on LinkedIn there. But uh, yeah, thank you for, for, for that. Um, so we've got some great resources on the website mm. uh, for anyone who's worried about someone or anyone who feels they're struggling themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, if you are struggling, remember, you, you know, 
you can go and look on, even if you don't feel ready to talk, you can still go and look at these resources and, and other people don't necessarily know about it. It's fine. You know, use it as, use it as the first step. Um, yeah, it's definitely the, the most important thing. Uh, but yeah, make sure you check out um, everything that Steve is up to. Uh, the link to the Jordan legacy will be in the show notes um, for this episode. You can also follow me on Instagram at the after hours lounge. Um, and yeah, thank you very much, Steve, for, for being here. Thank you very much to you guys for listening. Um, and we will see you for the next one.